1: Time again for another Political Rewind on a gloomy, gloomy day in the state of Georgia. Lots of rain, clouds. Uh, It's still kind of dark uh, where I'm broadcasting from uh, right Mm -hmm. now. Um, And the weather's going to continue this way, apparently, for the next couple of days. But I'm no weatherman. I'm no meteorologist. I'm here to talk politics. And I have Mm -hmm. just the panel uh, to do that today, starting with Tamar Hallerman, uh, senior reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Tamar, you uh, took a little vacation and are back at work again, and we're so glad to have you back on the show today.
0: Thanks, Bill. Spent the week in Arizona, getting a little sunshine. This this gloomy weather isn't uh, the, the best motivation to get back into it, but mm-hmm. I'm excited to be back.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I understand that. Uh, Riley Bunch. Uh, who is a public policy reporter for Georgia Public Broadcasting, is back with us. Riley, you said before the show, you've been counting, this is your 20th appearance on Political Rewind. Uh, that's a, that's great. Uh, you've got a long way to go to catch up with these others, though.
2: I was just going to say, I don't really have much on tomorrow and Alan, but thanks for keep having me back.
1: Uh, we're glad to have you here. Um, and Alan Abramowitz emeritus professor of political science at emory university alan a long career at emory which uh, continues with your emeritus status uh but you're essentially beginning a uh, well-deserved sort of retirement i think it's fair to say right that's right <laughs> sort of
3: <laughs> <laughs>
1: okay well we're glad you're here today and a little later in the show uh, we're going to talk about a new piece that you've just published in Larry Sabato's uh, Crystal Ball about uh, white voters and uh, how they're looking at Democrats these days. I was really fascinated by that. But tomorrow, I'd really like to start uh, today with this Herschel Walker interview with Glenn Beck, and and to some extent, one of the reasons I want to talk about it is is I thought, in a way, it deserved more attention. Than it got at the time. Now we know Glenn Beck is a very conservative uh, analyst. Um, he's a big fan of Herschel Walker. He was essentially he was aware he was wearing a run Herschel uh, button <laughs> when he did the interview. And and tomorrow he asked Herschel about accusations of domestic abuse about his mental health problems. And I want to play, I'm going to play about a minute of it and then ask you all whether you, how you felt about what seemed to be a sort of a shrugging off of a very serious issue. Let's listen. You have been on my podcast before, and we talked about mental struggles, mental illness that you have struggled with, um, the different things that you've gone through. You're truly, I think, a remarkable success story, on being able to weather all of those sto- uh, storms, um, CNN is now coming out and saying that, I don't know, there was domestic violence uh, in your past, and they say you won't address any of this stuff.
2: Well, you know, I've already addressed all of that stuff, and they can see Herschel Walker has never been arrested by a police officer, never been in a police station for anything. And I've told them I've addressed it all, and, 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 and until they can educate themselves, and maybe buy my book and read it, and stuff and not make things up, and and I don't talk to them because I'm gonna not going to let them take my eyes off the
1: ball. I'm here to represent the state of Georgia, here to represent the United States Senate, not to go into these gotcha questions or them trying to educate themselves or trying to be funny because right now you're going to take mental health back. I brought it so far today because
2: I've been doing this for about 15 years, and what they've done is uh, taken mental health and made it
1: like a game. So, um, Tamar, he has talked about his mental health issues quite a bit. One of the things that I was struck by, though, was the sort of shrugging off in the way in which Glenn Beck asked question, oh, oh I don't know, accusations of domestic uh, violence. Isn't this a subject that Herschel Walker is going to have to talk about much more directly in his campaign ahead?
0: I would think so. This is a man who's running to represent 10 million Georgians in the U.S. Senate, and Um, it comes with the vetting of being a candidate. Um, I half agree with him in that I think the media sometimes can be really bad when it comes to talking about really sensitive issues like mental health. We've really bungled a lot of stories in the past when it comes to really sensitive issues like that. At the same time, it is our job to ask those questions and to keep asking those questions um, on behalf of the voters. Um, That is our job and and that is our our role in democracy. What I'm curious to see is whether this is going to be his strategy in the long term. You see a lot of Republican candidates now who are kind of taking that Trumpy position of not wanting to talk to anybody in the mainstream media. Is this going to be his strategy for the long term only going on shows like um, Glenn Beck or, or Sean Hayes Or or will he start making himself available to the mainstream media, Um, especially if he makes it past a primary and and is going to have to face the entire electorate? I think he will need to start answering those questions. So, um, so far, he hasn't acted like a traditional candidate. He um, his event in Perry with with former President Trump was his first time in kind of a more traditional campaign setting. Um, And I'm curious to see if this is the strategy going forward.
3: Alan. Well, I think he's going to be asked those questions, certainly. Um, And I think particularly the uh, allegations of um, domestic violence, um, which is something that is a little bit different. Um, It's not just a matter of dealing with mental health issues. Um, And I don't know that just saying, well, I was never arrested um, is necessarily going to satisfy reporters. But I, but I think that um, Tamar is absolutely right. I, I, I think the strategy going forward is going to be to try to avoid uh, having to answer questions from reporters from the mainstream media outlets and to primarily um, talk to uh, or do interviews with more friendly outlets, you know, with, with uh, conservative uh, pundits and where he, where he knows that, you know, he'll get softball questions and where he won't be pressed. Or answers Eventually, especially if there are debates in a general election campaign, though, I, I think that he may be forced to come up with um, a more complete explanation or somewhat more satisfying explanation for what, what happened.
1: Yeah, oh. Riley, I, I want to again focus on this notion of dismissing in such a cavalier, it, it sounded to me like way, this question about women who have accused him of, of, of violence against them. And, and I wonder, is he so famous, is he so beloved by University of Georgia football fans that uh, he will be able to, uh, that they outweigh something as serious as domestic violence charges? I, I can't imagine that, but I, we have no way of knowing.
2: Well, I mean, I think it's also important to look at how the host asked the question, right? He said CNN is just bringing up these accusations, and that's not true. You know, we've known Mm -hmm. this. The AJC has done (laughs) extensive reporting on this. But his reaction was, hey, go read my previously already written and edited responses in my book, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So he's playing... Like Tamar said, the, the classic Republican victim of the, the media card. And that is what he's running on is this kind of hometown hero approach, right? He's playing to the things that people love about him. So if he can stay as far as he can away from these terrible accusations, it will be better for him.
1: So, um... You know, Alan, I, th- I, was gonna t- I thought we'd talk about this later in the show, but it strikes me this might be a good time to actually talk about the latest research that you published in Larry Sabato's Crystal Ball. Because you asked the question that's certainly going to have an impact on our uh, race next year here when Raphael Warnock faces off against a Republican uh, candidate, all of whom are um, men, um, and maybe Herschel Walker. And the question you asked was, um, is there any way that the Democratic Party can win back the white working class voters who ab- have abandoned them in uh, elections over the past right. years? And you talk about what you uh, uh, decided about that in terms of the data that you crunched to get to your conclusion.
3: Right. Well, first of all, I think it's important to understand that this has been the, uh, the result of a, of a very long term trend in American politics, where we've seen a reversal of the traditional class divide between the parties among white voters, where if you go back to the New Deal and post-New Deal era, and as recently as the 1970s and 80s even, uh, non-college whites were an important component of the Democratic Electoral Coalition and white college graduates, on the other hand, um, were, were pretty solidly Republican and their voting tendencies. Now what we've seen is that that has completely flipped. Um, and there's this, this question that's constantly being debated among uh, a Democratic strategist and some academics about you know, what do the Democrats have to do to win back the support of white working class voters, uh, and can they or can they win them back? My conclusion is that it's going to be very difficult for Democrats to do that, um, that This alienation of of non-college white voters from the Democratic Party, it goes very deep. Um, It's not just based on one or two issues. Um, It's not just based on cultural issues. It goes across the board. Um, They find themselves on the opposite side of the Democratic Party on virtually all the major issues facing the country. Um, And underlying that, in turn, is a sense of racial grievance that is very widespread among these non-college white voters so there's a very small group of swing voters there among this group um, who are movable one way or the other joe biden did win back a small uh, a, a number of them so he did slightly better but in terms of any big shifts i don't think we're going to see that and and some of the things that are being advocated as ways for democrats to appeal to white working class voters such as downplaying their support for lgbt rights for example would be likely to alienate the very college-educated white voters who have been moving in their direction in recent years, uh, and, and who, by the way, played a crucial role in uh, the victories that Democrats gained in the 2020 presidential election and then in the 2021 runoff elections in Georgia.
1: Yeah, um, Tomorrow, one of the things that I think Alan uh, concluded here that's a warning uh, uh, sign for Democrats, he says Democratic leaders who have been trying to win back support of white working class voters who've been voting Republican in recent years, uh, have been trying to appeal to them through their economic interests or shifting to the right on issues like immigration and gay rights. And they're not going to get very far the way that Alan uh, sees this. So, I mean, as we approach 2022, I, it, you, you've got to wonder whether or not these white working class voters are just, whether there's much reason, and Alan questions it too, that Democrats, have they just lost this group?
0: Yeah, and there, there's two things that kind of come to mind as Alan kind of summarized his report. The first is the, the nominating fight in 2020 on the Democratic side, the, the sprawling field that we did have where you had a lot of people saying maybe Joe Biden is the right kind of guy to appeal to a lot of those um, you know white working class folks, you know talk about his working class roots in um, in Pennsylvania, kitchen table issues, that sort of thing. And that was the argument that was used um, to kind of rally the troops around him that that a more liberal, nominee could alienate a lot of those voters. Um, and, you know, Alan was right. It was enough to win over just enough, but it wasn't such a substantial change from um, from 2016. What'll be interesting to see is um, kind of looking ahead to 2022 in Georgia. Um, you know, Stacey Abrams kind of set the model in 2018 by proving that you could run as an unapologetic liberal in Georgia and do far better than a lot of those Ah, uh, white candidates who had been kind of pushing toward the middle for the Democrats all those years and not doing much better than 45 percent of the electorate. So it's a strategy that that has already started happening a lot in Georgia, and one that Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff only continued last year in the runoff, or sorry, earlier this year. Yeah,
1: in the I, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you at the end there, smart. You know, Riley, I said this frequently, and uh, and uh, during that 2018 election uh, campaign. That uh, first in the primaries, when Stacey Abrams did uh, point the way for a a Democratic Party of Georgia that could take on more liberal positions and hope to win an election, um, she defied years of conventional thinking in Georgia— that it was yellow dog Democrats who somehow the Democratic Party had to get back into the fold, the Roy Barnes approach to politics. And in fact, back then, uh, Roy Barnes, Buddy Darden, and others who believed in that yellow dog, white, rural Democratic coalition, in fact, backed Stacey Evans for a governor rather than Stacey Abrams. This is all my long way of saying that Tamar makes an Mm -hmm. excellent point. Stacey Abrams said, no, no, no. There's a new day in Georgia, and we can capitalize on it. But it really isn't among those white working class voters that Alan's Mm -hmm. talking about.
2: Well, I mean, I think that 2018 election and then as well as the the Senate, two Senate seats this year, it showed that there are not moderate, there's not swing voters anymore, right? You know, the issues have become so polarized. It's one side or the other. And you're right. Democrats have learned that they can get away with that in Georgia. They can still win with these extreme policies. And I think going back to more of a national perspective of can Democrats win this group of voters back? I think if you layer over the um, policy decisions they've had to make during the pandemic or they've leaned toward making in the pandemic, you have mask mandates, shutdowns, things like that. I think that puts Pushes that that demographic of voters even further away, right? So any kind of gains they've had trying to win back those voters have substantially fallen backwards during the pandemic.
3: Ellen, yeah, I I, I think that what Stacey Abrams' campaign showed, and then the uh, Biden campaign and the uh, Warnock and Ossoff campaigns in the runoff election, is that the Georgia it, it highlighted the ways that the Georgia electorate has changed over time. So uh, one of the reasons Democrats, uh, one of the key reasons that that, that Abrams uh, outperformed these earlier Democratic candidates and and then uh, Biden, Warnock, and Ossoff were were able to finally break through is is because of the the increasing non-white share uh, of the Georgia electorate, and because of the uh, increasing uh, white share of college-educated voters among among whites, uh, particularly in metro Atlanta, uh, where we saw big gains uh, by from the Democrats in 2020 and 2021. Uh, So it's a different different electorate um, and and that's the key to understanding what's going to happen in in 2022 as well. uh, One thing we can predict with a high degree of confidence is that the voting patterns in 2022 in the elections for governor and in the U.S. Senate election are are going to be very, very similar to the ones that we saw in, in 2020 and 2021. Uh, you're going to see the uh, very, very similar coalitions. You're going to see very, very similar voting patterns across the different regions uh, of the state. And, and the final outcome is probably going to be decided by a very narrow margin, you know, as, as one way or the other, uh, uh, depending on which party does a better job of, of, of mobilizing uh, its voters and, and, and appealing to the very small group of swing voters, um, you know, who, although small, I still would say, they still can be important because the elections are so close. Yeah,
0: I mostly agree with what Alan said, with one big exception and one big kind of variable. What's so different about 2022 is that you still have somebody as powerful as former President Trump out there um, using every chance he can to crap on Brian Kemp. And so I think, would he be a more kind of conventional former president and and stay out of politics or not? crap on Republican politicians who are running for re-election. I would agree with Alan that, that it would be kind of about the, the same. But that's going to be the big variable this year. How much is Trump's criticism of Brian Kemp at every turn? How much is that going to sour Republican voters? Um, are there going to be Republican voters who sit out entirely um, in November 2022? Are there going to be ones who just skip the gubernatorial uh, race on the ballot and then just start going from lieutenant governor on down? Um, will there be a Trumpier candidate who can challenge Brian Kemp in the primary? So far, we're not seeing that. So I think that's going to be a huge variable and one that Kemp's team has got to be sweating mm-hmm. at this moment.
1: Yeah, you know, Riley, that makes complete sense. I, on one hand, I suppose if if you're, um, and certainly if you're Brian Kemp, you've got to be glad that no serious, and maybe that's unfair to Vernon Jones, but mm-hmm. most people don't see him as a particularly mm-hmm. serious challenger to Brian Kemp. Uh that nobody has emerged at this point to challenge him. He is likely to be the nominee. Uh, but Tamar's point is well made. What happens in November if Trump won't stop attacking him? Will his base turn out? Will Will the Republican base turn out for Brian Kemp?
2: Well, I think that's the biggest concern, right? You know, we know Kemp is going to be successful in the, in the primary. Um, but if um, Donald Trump continues to come as he did in Perry and push back and push back and push him down and push Stacey Abrams ahead of Kemp. You know, that mm. the, that quote that he said Stacey Abrams was going to be a better governor than Kemp. That does that keep Republicans from the polls? And I think we've also seen very small but steady, you know, um, rebuke of Kemp in the county um, GOP parties. You know, we saw Cobb County censor him um, for for. Uh, on a, the basis of illegal immigration, which was kind of weird, but it, it's just this internal fighting. And are Georgia Republicans going to be able to get people to back their incumbent? I don't
3: know. Ellen? Well, that, that is a big question. And um, assuming that Trump, you know, continues uh, with and there's no reason to think that he's going to change. Uh, you know, my hunch is that um, in the end, Republican uh, voters in Georgia will rally be, behind Kemp. Uh, uh, I, I think he's done enough, uh, I, and clearly he's been very concerned about uh, making sure that he does things to try to win back the support or keep the support uh, of the ba- of the Republican base. Uh, and that's why we've seen him, you know, uh, adopt certain policies on you know, on opposing, opposing mandate, vaccine and mask mandates, um, and uh, taking very you know, conservative uh, positions on, on, on other issues to, to appeal to these voters. And that's why I think you're not, you're not seeing uh, a strong challenger in the Republican primary. You're not seeing a serious challenger. I don't think you will. And in the, in the end, I, I don't think that, I don't think Trump is going to be, uh, have as big an impact there uh, as a lot of people are, are suspecting even though
1: he remains the popular as as, with I, I apologize. Uh, the, as long as the ball is in your court, and, and I'd love everybody to weigh in on this eventually, um, to what extent is President Biden's approval rating right now, which is dropping dramatically? I mean, he's essentially at 45% right now, which is where Trump was at the same point in his presidency. But as uh, Henry Olson, conservative columnist in the Washington Post made clear today among among independents, he's about as unpopular as, as Trump was in, in this. He's a little ahead of Trump in terms of overall popularity, but among independents, he's no better than Trump. So qu- the question is, number one, how important is the president's approval rating these days in when all races are nationalized in next year's Georgia elections? And mm-hmm. how important is the Biden agenda, the ability of Democrats to pass that agenda to what happens in Georgia next year. Your thoughts on that, Alan?
3: Well, I, I think it matters. Um, certainly, I, I think the Democrats would be much rather be running with a Joe Biden say, approval rating up in, above 50% uh, than, than below 50%. Uh, it has fallen some, no question. Although, I, I'm not sure I'd agree with the dramatic part of that statement. If you think about where he was, he was in the low, low 50s and now he's in the mid 40s or something like that. Um, there's still time for him to you know, bump that back up again. Um, I think you're likely to see, his, uh, uh, especially if the Democrats are able to pass these key elements of the agenda, I think you'll see the approval rating improve somewhat uh, um, among Democrats and among independents who lean Democratic. When you talk about independence, what I would say in response to Henry Olsen's comment, a uh, 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 column, is that you, ha- you, you can't look at independence as a, as a single uh, uh, sort of uh, undifferentiated group. That that they're divided into those who lean towards the Democrats and Republicans, and and then a smaller group in the middle who don't really lean one way or the other. I think Biden can uh, get his get support back at least among the independents who lean towards the Democratic Party, uh, if if he can get that agenda uh, enacted. But I I look at my indicator. I look at is not presidential approval so much as this what's called the generic ballot. Uh, and it's a more direct measure of how voters are feeling about the upcoming uh, congressional elections. Now, when we look at that, and there aren't many polls asking about that, but when we look at those that have been asked, where it's been asked recently, uh, it shows Democrats still with a modest advantage. Now, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to hold on to their majority in the House and Senate. Um, but I, I think there's nothing that I've seen yet so far that necessarily predicts uh, uh, anything like what we saw, you know, in, t- in, in 2010. I think that Riley and then uh, Tamar?
2: Yeah, I, I, I kind of agree with Alan on this one. I feel like it's early, right? Um, he has the time to win back support, but it would still be unwise for Democrats not to be concerned. Um, Biden has made a few missteps uh, so far in office that has really turned away and upset um, minority voters, especially that were making such a huge impact on Georgia elections, how he handled Afghanistan, how he's handling the situation at the border. Um, I think that, you know, he has time to improve, but like I said, that he should be on his toes a little bit
1: tomorrow. Give you the last word before our break.
2: Sure. I think the
0: real impact on, um, you know, of Biden's approval rating. And I agree with Riley and Allen. It's a little early. I'd be more curious to see what things look like closer to the primary and the, the general election. Right now, all these polls are a snapshot in time, and we're more than a, a year away from any date of consequence. But I think the real risk lies with the House majority uh, that, that Nancy Pelosi is clinging to with about three votes. Um, and that's where you always see in midterm election years, where the, the party that holds the White House and, and the majority is often the party that suffers traditionally. So I think that's where the Lucy McBaths and the Carolyn Bordeaux of the world have to worry, especially, um, you know, re- with redistricting. But also, you know, Raphael Warnock is one that has to worry because Republicans are tying every single thing Joe Biden does to, to him. I think it'll matter a little bit less in these state level races, especially when it comes to governor.
1: Okay. um, Thank you for that. I've got to get to a break. I do want to say I was not suggesting that we are locked in to a a situation that will prevail through 2022. I was asking whether the dynamics at play here, how much impact they could have as we move forward through 2022. And I appreciate all of your observations about that. Let's get to our first break of Political Rewind for today. We'll be back with more in just a moment. GPB's Riley Bunch, the AJC's Tamar Hallerman, and Emory University Emeritus Professor Alan Abramowitz are with us today. Um, Riley, I do want to spend a couple minutes on a report that you uh, published at GPB. It's been a week now, but we haven't seen you since it happened. Uh, you wrote a really compelling and troubling piece about abuse toward healthcare workers who are already overwhelmed with COVID in hospitals all over the state of Georgia, in some cases harassment, in some cases actual physical violence. Uh, Tell us just a little, and and it had great impact. I mean, I was able to watch and see how people reacted to it. Um, Tell us a little bit more about what you uh, learned.
2: Well, I appreciate you bringing it back up on the show today. I know it's been a, a year and news cycle since that story came out, but um, you know, right. hospitals across the state, from north to south Georgia, they've been raising the alarm on a troubling spike in violence against their healthcare workers and staff in ER departments, in general departments. You know, against nurses, it could be anyone. It could be a technician. Um, they're seeing, and this has been a long-term problem in healthcare, right? But they're seeing this spike for many different reasons. The hospitals are strained of resources. Um healthcare staff are tired and, you know, the retention rates are really bad and also the COVID, you know, the the crush of COVID on hospitals, the the poli- politicization, can't even say that word, of COVID and and the tensions in the room. So hospital staff, they're just getting pummeled uh, by patients, by families, um, verbal abuse, um, physical abuse. And as state lawmakers actually are looking at this issue as in a study committee um, that the Senate is looking at right now, and they, they heard from hospitals last week. Um, and th- this is an issue they've tried to tackle before, but it hasn't gotten much better and at this point it's kind of a breaking point for hospitals right now.
1: What are if if you have a study committee uh, looking at this in the legislature the question is what what steps are they and what are they thinking they might do to address this?
2: Well, the, the- That's the big question. Right. So they they have in the past they've enhanced penalties for people that, you know, um, had violent outbursts against hospital staff. But that hasn't necessarily changed the situation. We're not seeing things getting better. Um, What hospitals were saying is they need more um, preventative training. Right. De-escalation training, more funding for that and also funding for staff. They are so low. Grady especially talked about how few security officers they have for their hospitals hospital that serves hundreds of thousands right um so those are some of the things they brought up during um the study committee but uh, another point is it's really hard to talk about these health care issues these public policy issues you know we're seeing violence against our um our um public health department right it's hard to talk about these issues right now when they're so polit- politicized
1: um you you talked to uh Kelsey Reed, who's the director of patient care at Phoebe Putney Hospital uh, down in Albany, and uh, it, which was hit so hard by COVID in the initial uh, uh, round of the, the virus, and then hit again this year. And here's just a little of what she said to you about this.
2: We are, we're in our profession for a reason. We're here to, to help people and to serve people, and that's our job is to take care of people. So I think that often makes it really easy to just excuse the behavior. Um, it's almost like we accept it as just being part of the job. Um, but it, it should not be the norm. We just need a, need a better process of how we handle it
3: going forward.
1: You know, Tamar and Ellen, um, What? by the way, let's po- we, can, we can post a link again. To your story, which is available at uh, gpb.org, so why don't we do that, uh, Sam and Sarah, so people can read the entire story? But what I started to ask Tamar and and Ellen is this: these confrontational behaviors that, in this case, are all about hospital workers, are being replicated in all parts of our, in other parts of our society. Mm-hmm. Teachers, educators are beginning to feel the same thing. Parents who are angry either because their kid is being forced to wear a mask, or they're not have don't have a mask mandate, are being confronted in in very emotional, in some cases, um, uh, ways that are could be considered harassment. It this is becoming an endemic problem across uh, sectors of our lives, and it's incredibly troubling to And
0: and one thing I wonder is how much <laughs> a response from the legislature can really how much government can really help in a situation like this yes i i'm sure that safety officers at hospitals could help but i think a lot of this stems toward the heat you know stems from the heated rhetoric we see about every political issue on social media and on cable news and to a certain extent a lot of these politicians are kind of feeding into this right because there's <laughs> on one side or the other everyone is so steamed all the time and so i think that's that's part of it too um and i really do think it's it's a really compelling heartbreaking story that that riley wrote and just to put it into context hospitals are already struggling to retain their workers right now after 18 months of a pandemic that has everyone burned out um you know people pulling all nighters, working these shifts in these hospitals, unending waves of people coming in, and so a lot of nurses and uh, respiratory therapists are are leaving, um, and so I'm sure this does not help the situation at all.
3: Alan, well, well, I would follow up on your point that you know we're not just seeing this with regard to the, you know, healthcare workers and in hospitals; we're seeing it in, in, ma- in many areas of life, many walks of life. Um, I'm thinking now of what we've seen, for example, at, at some of the local school board meetings where um, where we're seeing these outbursts at times uh, uh, among parents, um, particularly, I would have to say, among those uh, who are opposed to uh, things like you know, mask mandates. Um, so um, there's not a simple easy solution to this. I mean, clearly, I mean, COVID is uh, has really ramped up the, the the sort of pressure uh here uh, but I but I do think that um a a large part of the blame for this goes to political leaders who have been in, deliberately you know inflaming the tensions uh and and uh you know interfering in decisions of of local governments for example um I think that's making it more difficult.
1: You know, Riley, I, forgive me for putting this in a personal context, but, you know, I'm a child of the 60s. I, I was out there demonstrating against the war in Vietnam. I, like a lot of people my age, we were challenging institutions in uh, fairly um, antagonistic ways. But the center held a democracy Uh, prevailed. The, the, The country did not start to fall apart at that point. It looked like it might. Today, I worry about your generation. I worry about my grown children's generation and the lack of respect for institutions, the unraveling of democracy. That's a huge question and one I hope we can take up on Political Rewind at some point. But I do worry about what's happened to respect and uh, people's ability to work uh, together to solve problems?
2: Well, I, God, it, it is such a big question, but I think it goes back to it's politics. It's the time in politics that we're seeing right now, this divisiveness, this one side or the other. And I think, you know, being on the younger end of journalism, I don't remember a time I was covering politics when it wasn't like this, right? But I've talked to older journalists been covering politics for decades, and they have never seen a time like this where journalists are distrusted, doctors are distrusted, scientists are distrusted. It's its so extreme, and it'll be so hard to come back, come back to. And to your point, for the generations growing up in this this is all they've known
1: all right well i didn't mean to get all philosophical on y'all but it's just a mm-hmm. subject that i think is deserving of a lot more uh, attention uh, in the uh, weeks and months ahead let's do this let's get a final break of the show out of the way we still have a lot of subjects i'd love to ask the panel about um and we'll do that after the final break of political rewind <laughs> Welcome back to Political Rewind. Tomorrow, um, uh, Riley mentioned uh, in in our earlier conversation that Cobb County Republican Party has become the latest to censure <laughs> Governor Brian Kemp, the Republican governor of the state of Georgia. They did it on the basis of his unwillingness or his inability to fight uh, illegal immigration. I'm not quite clear. <laughs> on how much the governor of uh, a state like Georgia that isn't along the uh, Mexican border can do about it, but that's the tack they took.
0: Yeah, and one of many uh, county Republican parties that uh, have done the same, he's also gotten rebukes in Appling, Chattuga, DeKalb, Jasper, uh, a whole bunch. Um, so, and the move has caused a lot of division internally. Um, we saw... Um, the, the former head of the the cobb GOP resign in um in opposition to that move. and he talked about how it how he saw it as counterproductive, especially as we're looking at um, primary season next year and and trying to reelect uh, uh, Brian Kemp. so, as we were talking about at the top of the show, um, it is certainly a challenging time to be uh, to be Brian Kemp. And how do you keep a party unified when you have a command, a former commander in chief, who is so actively and publicly attacking a, a Republican governor?
1: Yeah, Alan Jason Shepard, the former GOP chair up in Cobb County, uh, quit over this censure of Kemp. Mm-hmm. And he made the point that really we were talking about earlier. He said, "How can the Republican Party of of Cobb County, censure the guy who they're eventually going to have to endorse in a general election campaign against whoever the Democrats, presumably Stacey Abrams, put up.
3: I think the Republicans uh, across the country, not just here in Georgia, uh, have a big problem uh, heading into the midterm elections next year. You know, as we were saying earlier, normally in a midterm election year, the president's party, uh, in this case the Democrats, would uh, be expected to, to uh, lose uh, lose seats uh, in, in the House and Senate and, and state legislatures. That's just the, the normal pattern of American politics. One of the reasons why I think there's some uncertainty about that heading into next year is that we have former President Trump who is uh, stirring the pot and, and who is intervening uh, in Republican primaries, who is endorsing candidates, uh, and in some cases candidates challenging uh, long-time Republican in, in incumbents like Liz Cheney in, in, in Wyoming, and, and and some of the candidates that he's in, endorsing uh, here, I, I think, are, are uh, ones who are coming from the far-right wing uh, of the Republican Party, somebody like Jody Heiss uh, here in Georgia, who he has endorsed for Secretary of State, uh, who's challenging Brad Ra- incumbent Brad Raffensperger. Uh, if Jody Heiss is successful uh, in defeating... Uh, Brad Raffensperger in in that primary, uh, then I think that that put, very much puts that seat at risk for Republicans. Uh, if Raffensperger is the, the incumbent is running; they pro- probably have a pretty good chance of holding that that seat. But if if it's Jody Heiss, then I think that you're you're just opening things up and giving the Democrats a, a real opportunity uh, to to win that seat, and that's what we're kind of seeing in, in a number of races ar- around the country. So I think. the the very divisive uh, presence of President Trump uh, and some of his allies in in these uh, primary contests uh, across the country is a source of of really deep concern for Republicans right now. In
0: 2018, Brian Kemp edged out Stacey Abrams by only about 55,000 votes. That was an incredibly tight margin. Um, And If that matchup is going to happen again next year, it it makes me wonder um, how tight is it going to be and how much can uh, Donald Trump publicly attacking Brian Kemp, how much does that eat into that margin? We saw the danger of that in January uh, as as Trump was railing against the, the results of the 2020 election and not kind of actively doing more to help David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler, that was enough for them to lose their races. Is that something we're going to see again in 2022 with Brian Kemp? If just enough Republican voters sit out of of that general election race, is that going to be enough for Stacey Abrams to win? It's very possible.
2: I think Tamara hit the nail on the head. Right. You know, these local groups and these and their communities, these are the grassroots voters that Republicans so desperately need to turn out to the polls right now. It, it may seem that there's, you know, a handful of counties that have censured um, Governor Brian Kemp, Brad Raffensperger, these Republican officials, but they add up. Right. And and the, with margins so narrow, if these voters, these grassroots voters who are diehard to the Republican Party are not showing up, that that's a concern for Republicans.
1: Republicans. Um, all right. Um, we will be talking about that for a long, long time to come, obviously, as the 2022 election cycle continues moving forward. Um, but let me change the subject and go back, really. Uh, we, we keep talking about Donald Trump's challenge of the 2020 election in Georgia, and there's all this news that spins off from that and continues to do so. The latest is, as we know, there are a group of pro-Trump uh, advocates who who have been in court uh, trying to get uh, a judgment that Fulton County's uh, absentee ballots need to be examined more closely. Um, The judge has put off a final ruling on that, Brian Amaro, a Superior Court judge. But um, now there's a new approach that that group has taken, Riley. Now they are asking the judge, there's five members of the Fulton County Election Board as of last year, uh, three Democrats, two Republicans. Now, it the group that's challenging the absentee votes is asking the judge to dismiss the Democrats so that there are only Republican members of that board, Re- and then the group would turn to the Republican members of the board who would more mm-hmm. than gladly give them what they're asking for. Now, there's very little chance that a judge is going to allow this But it just shows the lengths that they're willing to go to to try to get this to happen.
2: Well, it's definitely a very interesting strategy that I have not seen before. Um, when I read that story in the AJC, I thought I read the first graph wrong. You know, I had to go back and read it a couple times. They're only suing the yeah. Republicans, what? But it, you know, it's it's not incorrect to think that if they did have these Democrats dismissed, that it would be more of um, a lenient <laughs> case for mm. them, and they might actually well. It would be hard to see the judge allow this, but you know, they might actually get their review in that way. So I. I think it's an interesting effort. I'll see how it plays out in court, though.
1: Ellen, here we go again. Just another unwinding of institutions.
3: Well, well, it's really remarkable. I mean, I'm 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 really amazed that this that this case has gotten as far as it has. To tell you the truth, um, and and now we see uh, what we see the results of this uh, uh, rec- of this uh, recount in Arizona. Uh, where Republicans challenged the vote in Maricopa County, right? They got, they got the ballots. They, they got their people in there to recount them, the cyber ninjas. Uh, the cyber ninjas recounted the ballots and concluded that there was a difference in the outcome. Joe Biden won by more than what the original count showed, slightly more. Uh, uh, and in the after, and yet in the aftermath of that, here we go again. Uh, here in Georgia, and this is happening in a number of other states as well. Even in Texas, in Texas, we're seeing a challenge as well, where Donald Trump won pretty easily. Republicans, nevertheless, want to recount ballots, uh, and all of this is being stimulated, of course, by the former president himself and some of his political allies. This determination to relitigate the 2020 election, uh, and we're seeing that whenever Trump shows up for a rally, that's what he wants to talk about. He doesn't want to talk about uh, you know the future of the Republican Party about the candidates who'll be running in the midterm ele- elections, uh, about what policies the Republicans should pursue in the future. He wants to go back and relitigate the 2020 election, and I think it's uh, it's very risky. This is very dangerous territory. I think in the end this this suit is going to be thrown out uh, for sure. And this this, this latest. Uh, uh, iteration of it is, is, uh, I mean, you don't have to be a, a legal expert, I think, to, to see this as totally absurd. Um, and, but it's just another indication of, of just how far we're seeing, uh, some, uh, Republican activists, uh, and party leaders willing to go to, to down, down, down the rabbit hole with the former president.
1: Uh, Meanwhile, tomorrow, the Brookings Institution, which is a left-leaning think tank and which is where they've been keeping careful track of all these election challenges for months and months now. They've been doing a a, a major uh, project around that. Their legal uh, analysts have now issued a report uh, which says— that Fonnie Willis, the Fulton County DA, who is still investigating whether to bring criminal charges potentially against Donald Trump for interfering with the election, their reporting uh, and their analysis suggests that Trump really is vulnerable uh, to the possibility of being charged in in this matter. And they issued a supplemental report after the rally in Perry a couple weeks ago because they say that some of the comments Trump made there add fuel to the fire and give the Fulton County DA more to work with.
0: Yeah, in their report, they conclude that Trump is at, quote, a substantial risk of possible state charges predicated on multiple crimes. And they go on to list a whole bunch, including criminal sati- criminal solicitation to commit election fraud, intentional interference with performance of election duties, conspiracy to commit election fraud, racketeering, all sorts of things. The report also goes into possible legal defenses that Trump and his team uh, might use. And in general, these authors conclude that Trump that, They don't think Trump has much of a a defense, Um, of course, should be taken with a grain of salt. Um, But certainly interesting as we wait to hear more from Fani Willis's office. It's been about seven months since she sent letters to Brian Kemp, Chris Carr, all of our uh, top Republican state officials urging them to preserve documents. We know that her attorneys have um, gone in front of a grand jury to solicit um, documents and uh, to get subpoenas for documents and interviews with people. We know they've talked to people in Brad Raffensperger's office. They've hired the state's top expert on racketeering. But that's sort of all we know at the moment. Um, and we're kind of expecting to for things to heat up in the months ahead.
1: Yeah, it's going to be fascinating to watch how that proceeds. And and, and if they should decide to indict, indict the explosion would be, uh, I, I think, so powerful that it would be mm-hmm. really something to watch unfold. Um, let me, one last quick subject before we have to leave today. Riley, I, the um, State Ethics Board has um, raised the ceiling for what candidates can, how much money a candidate can raise for elections in the state of Georgia two questions about that really well not a question I had, I didn't realize the, the the ethics board had the power to do that unilaterally apparently they do but do we really need to give candidates more money in the election cycles ahead it just struck me as and an, an, we don't need any more money Riley.
2: Well, money in politics is never a fun subject. Right. And I think that uh, they the board argued that they were raising this money due to inflation. Right. Inflation of costs and things like that. Um, but we're seeing uh, Republicans. We've already seen Republicans open up channels for new funds for their candidates during legislative session. And I think that it kind of stems from a deep rooted concern that campaigns these as Georgia gets so much national attention, these campaigns are raking in more. More and more cash, and if Governor Brian Kemp is up against Stacey Abrams, who is a money-making machine, you know he's going to need all the help he can get, right? So I don't think it's surprising to see um, the State Ethics Commission do this uh, ahead of such a, a tumultuous election that we're going to see.
1: Ellen, is seen right. yeah. a word to use here?
3: Well, I think uh, that that was exactly right. I mean, I, I think that the, the reason we're seeing these efforts to to uh, allows uh, candidates, and particularly incumbents, um, to, to bring in more money, particularly Republicans, is because they're feeling the pressure uh, of heading into the, the midterm election cycle. Uh, judging by what we've been seeing on the airwaves, I don't think there's any shortage of money right now. I judge it by what we saw in 2020 and 21 when the airwaves were literally saturated with political advertisements. I mean, uh, you know, how, how, much, how are they gonna use this additional money? there is a diminishing return on campaign spending. Uh and when you look at it now we're talking about tens of millions of dollars being spent uh, on these literally tens of millions being spent on these statewide races. Uh, uh far far more than than in the past, but I, I you know, I think I you have to question how effective is this additional spending even going to be uh when the airwaves yeah. are already saturated and voters are already lined up, you know, voters m- The vast majority are already lined up, uh, and and, and I'm very skeptical that it's going to end up making much difference one way or the other.
1: Uh, We're out of time. Alan Abramowitz gets the last word on today's show. Um, Alan, thank (laughs) you so much. Uh, It was great to have you here. Tamar Hallerman, we always love Tuesdays when you're with us. And Riley Bunch, thank you for being here for today's show. That's it for Political Rewind today. Sarah Callis, Sam Burmistoss, thank you For your work on the show today. We're back, of course, with a new show tomorrow. And as I close, I like to say please take care, stay healthy, wear your mask when you're around people, especially indoors, and go get a flu shot since I know you're already vaccinated against COVID. Mm -hmm. See you all tomorrow.